Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Hello everyone, my name is John McAdam. This is the Stick to Wrestling Podcast, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. Um, This is a classic wrestling podcast, mostly focusing on wrestling from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We're going to be a little bit all over the place today, but before I get rolling, I want to uh, invite you to join our Facebook group. All you have to do is search Stick to Wrestling, get in the group, you're invited. We talk wrestling. We talk more than wrestling. Yesterday, we were talking college football. Uh, Today, I asked everyone who their favorite NFL team is. is, uh, We're recording on the first NFL Sunday of the season. So we're putting out for you guys. Uh, Also, if you'd like to donate to Stick to Wrestling, uh, just uh, don't go to PayPal and donate to the email ProWrestlingArchives, all one word, at gmail.com. And if you would like to follow me on Twitter, just search John McAdam and follow the guy with the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar, making his long-awaited return to the guest chair at Stick to Wrestling, our semi-regular co-host, Steve Generelli. Steve, thank you for returning. It's great to be back in the Worldwide Wrestling Federation after a lengthy absence. <laughs> uh, those days, would th- back in the day, that sentence would get me rolling. As soon as Vince McMahon would say, and making his debut, like my blood pressure would go through the roof. And, you know, <laughs> and sometimes it was great, and sometimes it'd be like, uh, not him. But anyway, <laughs> well, uh, I, I did, I did want to say that um, the uh, um, uh, you know we, we we're going to talk about a lot of good wrestling coming up. But I, I was interested to hear John's thoughts as we're we're approaching the very end of the baseball season. My Yankees have really kind of conked out, but we have a glimmer of hope with this guy called the Martian, this Jason Dominguez, who's hitting home runs at a rapid rate. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Red Sox? What, what's your final thoughts on the Red Sox for this year? Uh, I mean, the Red Sox have uh, the, Red, the the problem with the Red Sox is they seem to be rudderless. They there there's really not a direction. Uh, go they're going in. It's like okay, let's try to win uh, 87 games. You know, there's there's no real game plan. Uh, I don't think this team is good enough to really win anything in the postseason. I know the, the postseason has a lot a, a lot of luck. Is determined in the postseason. Let's be honest. A even a seven game series is a coin flip. But at the same time, I just I don't think the Yankees or the Red Sox have the horses this year. Yeah, they they just don't have the horses. But I I will say that you know to give them hope, the teams that are ahead of them, like say uh, uh, Toronto specifically, uh, Minnesota, Cleveland. I mean teams like that that are in the AL. Um, it's kind of a weak field. I mean there, there's there's some some good teams like look at Texas. Texas started off like wildfire. Now they're dropping to the back of the pack. I mean, the Braves seem to be the only team that's like this super super unbelievable team. They're the going to be the favorites in the playoffs. In in the in the Phillies, yeah, Houston and the Phillies uh, are going to be right there. But I want to make a prediction because I know you're big into baseball prospectus. Uh, when you read about Jason Dominguez in the prospectus next spring, it's going to have listed as a comparable to him, Bobby Abreu. So remember Bobby Abreu from the Phillies and the Yankees? Oh, of course. Bobby Abreu was once the most underrated player in baseball, and then he got traded to the Yankees and forget, forget that. Yeah. Um, Steve, we have too many wrestlers dying on us. Boy, ain't that the truth? I, I too many guys we grow grew up watching, and we mentioned Terry Funk last week, and I, I want to talk a little bit about Terry Funk. If you want a Terry Funk tribute, once again, go to Breaking Kayfabe with Jeff Baldrin and and Barry Rose. They did an unbelievable job. They were great. The one thing I want to say about Terry Funk is when I first saw him. I saw him a little bit in Florida, a little bit in Georgia, but then when he came to the WWF in 1985, right? Right. I saw him as this older guy who was once NWA champion, but is clearly on the other side of the hill. And it was either his first or second appearance. I think it was his second appearance where he hands his ring attire to Mel Phillips. And Mel Phillips, you know, he's just got too much in his hands, and Terry hands him the hat, and Mel just puts the the hat, Terry Funk's hat, on his head, 
and Terry goes nuts and he beats the crap out of Mel Phillips, the ring attendant. Now, Mel had been in the WWF in some capacity since I started watching in 1976. And I'm just like, oh, my God, this guy's beating up the ring <laughs> attendant. He's crazy. I remember, uh, and that was his first appearance, by the way. And and when he put when he put the hat on, uh, when Mel put the hat on uh, his head, Vince went like, ha, 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 ha. And then when Terry tore into him, like Vince is saying, "Oh no, what's going on?" You know, <laughs> it was so interesting. So so then he he makes that crazy debut in the WWF, and then four years later, we're with the NWA. Uh, Terry's just kind of this lean back, lean, uh, laid back kind of, you know, he's the announcer guy, the legendary wrestler who helps out with the commentary every now and then. And then out of nowhere, that angle with Ric Flair, which I had no idea was coming, right? And Funk, when he was with the NWA, he got heat like no one got heat in that promotion that I had seen before. I'm sure, you know, Johnny Valentine got it back in the 70s. But the, the heels in JCP, they were like the cool heels. Ric Flair, Tully Blanchard, Arn Anderson. Terry Funk was not a cool heel, and everyone hated him. I remember watching the tapings from Atlanta, and the fans just wanted to kill him. And that, that's what made Terry such a great wrestler. He knew what to do, and he knew how to get over. And there he was, you know, wrestling Ric Flair. I think he was 43 or 44 years old. And he's an old man, but he's middle-aged and crazy. He knew how to portray himself. And we're not even talking about, you know, four years after that in ECW. Yeah, he um, what what he did there, like you said, uh, I like your comparison to the Four Horsemen. The Four Horsemen were, were unbelievably great workers, and they were uh, you know good TV personalities. But Terry Funk was just like he was like you know he was like taking Jim Brown out of retirement. You know this guy who had done it all. He had been the world champion. He had been a god in Japan. I mean, he he was the, one of the most revered wrestlers of the 70s and into the 80s. And now here he is in 1989 in the NWA with, with, with Ric Flair, and it felt so real. I mean, I mean, you and I had seen a lot of wrestling that uh, from the 70s where you and I believed we, we could get into it. But these younger fans had never seen anything like this. And then he took that same persona into the 90s. Uh, he did it briefly with Jerry Lawler in the USWA. And then he, and he tore up ECW. Uh, I finally got to see him live in person. I know you saw him. Uh, well, well, why don't we go in chronological order? Why don't you mention about you saw him against Ric Flair in Boston? How, how'd that go? I saw him against Ric Flair. I'm trying to think when the first time I saw Terry Funk live was. It had to be WWF. It was uh, Hulk Hogan and Junkyard Dog against Terry Funk and Dory Funk Jr. at the uh -huh. Boston Garden. I saw Ric Flair versus Terry Funk in Baltimore. Then I saw them again, not in Boston, at the, the old Worcester Auditorium. They had a match. Okay. and. Mm -hmm. It was right after they had a really bad hurricane in the Carolinas and guys, you know, guys, wrestlers were losing their homes and, you know, there, it was a real disaster. So everyone's mind was on something else at this night or on this night in Worcester. And it was a really bad, bad show until Ric Flair and Terry Funk came out and they just tore the, the house, tore the roof off the place. It was like a four and a quarter star match in front of about, 2,000 people maybe on a Tuesday or a Wednesday night in Worcester, Massachusetts. And I mean, just, you know, just an unbelievable match. And I'm, I'm glad to have been part of it. You know, I got to see Ric Flair versus Terry Funk live. Well, f well, from your seeing him at, at, at a real important moment of his career, um, I went to a show in Binghamton. It was actually a, a raw taping, and it happened to be the same night that they did the Brawl for All, the first night of the Brawl for All in 1998. And one of the other matches on the card was uh, him teaming up with JBL against the guy that would later become uh, Scotty Tuhati. And uh, I've got the record right here. His partner was Brian Christopher, Jerry Lawler's son. So, but it was so funny. I, I, me and my buddy Dave Rogan were watching the matches, you know, and it was a TV taping. We were there for like three or four hours, and 
we've been there for a while and, and I'm, I'm seeing who's coming toward the ring. And I said, I nudged my buddy and I said, Hey, that, that's Terry Funk. Terry Funk is coming here tonight. I couldn't believe it, you know, because, you know, for those TV tapings, you really don't know who's going to show up. And, and it was just a regular match, just probably for a shotgun Saturday night or something like that. But it was just so great to see him in person. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's kind of a bucket list thing. I mean, I'm I'm very fortunate. I have seen all of the big stars from the 80s or the big U.S. stars from the 80s live. The biggest re- name I never saw live from the 80s is Mr. Wrestling 2. Mm-hmm. And I know he was at the Boston Garden once. I just wasn't at that show. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm lucky. I got to see everyone. I got to see the Funks, Bruno, Backlund, Bockwinkle, Race, Hogan, obviously. You know, everyone from that era, I, I can say... I at least got to see them once. I mean, you know, up and down the WWF and NWA rosters. Well, you're, you're a very lucky man, John. And in 1999, we saw a Beyond the Mat, which really featured uh, his uh, kind of uh, not only in the ring life, but his behind the scenes life. And you really you really felt the humanity for Terry Funk. Uh, you know, that he was in the uh, doctor's office and they're examining his knee. And, and you could really see he had given his whole life for wrestling. I mean, he was like a shell of himself. They showed him getting out of bed in the morning. Uh, that was painful to watch. Oh, yeah. You, you could just see that he had given his whole life to wrestling. And, and, and you know, I mean, the last thing I think he did, well, I mean, one of the very last things he ever did in, related to wrestling when Bruno died in 2018, he actually wrote an article for SI.com. And he wrote an article comparing Bruno to Joe DiMaggio. He was the Joe DiMaggio of wrestling. I mean, it just shows you that Terry Funk had his hand in everything. I mean, Hollywood movies, the biggest matches of all time. I mean, the guy, nobody, everybody loves Terry Funk. He, he just was God's gift to wrestling. He, he really was. And you're right. That was a, a hard scene to watch on uh, Beyond the Mat when, you know, the guy just couldn't get out of bed. I mean. Yeah, so you were at the first brawl, brawl for all. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. I mean, I, I really remember it because uh, Jim Ross brought his uh, mentor from Oklahoma, Danny Hodge, was there in Binghamton. You know, the guy with the greatest, uh, strongest hands of all time. And uh, yeah, it was. It was. It was an ugly scene as far as the matches. Uh, I think that was. That might have been the night that Steve Williams got hurt bad. So. No, that that wasn't the first night. Okay, um, yeah, we saw the opening round, so that m- must not have been it. But 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 yeah, it was very it was just very confusing to be there live because we didn't know what we were watching. We you know is this a work? Is it a shoot? We had no clue. So you know what? And I I did I did not watch the first brawl for all uh, the brawl with the first brawl for, for all live. I watched it on tape a few days later, and I heard a couple of things about it. But as soon as the first match was over. Okay, I knew I knew they were doing a tournament. I'm like, they should pull the plug on this right now. Right, that's how bad it was. I'm like, never mind that you have a couple of other matches scheduled. Do something else. This is a, a disaster, and I I will never understand how they brought it back the next week. It was clearly clearly a failure from an artistic and an entertainment standpoint. It's something no one wanted to see. And they kept bringing it back. Like the fans are chanting, we want wrestling as these guys are fighting for real. It was kind of a surreal world, but here we are. And I was just like, I couldn't believe they brought it back for a second week. Wow. Well, that, that was part of the whole time that Vince Russo was there, and, and he didn't know anything about wrestling. I mean, he was just he was just wanting to put on a wrestling version of the Jerry Springer show, honestly. Well, yeah, I, you know what? I have been watching the Raws from 25 years ago, okay? Yeah. And I, I thought they did an all-timer of a great job building up the Steve Austin versus Undertaker uh, SummerSlam match. Uh-huh. I, I, that was one of the best buildups I've ever seen. And I think I'm at the Raw right now that's right before SummerSlam. And, oh, boy, am I going to – you know? hopefully I won't stop doing this now that uh, college and NFL football are both back. But, I mean, they did a ph- I thought they did a phenomenal job. And, you know, for all of the negatives about Vince Russo that we've been hearing for God knows how long, I mean, the, you know, the WWF was on its rear end in 1987. 
and they started implanting implementing his ideas and they turned it around. They turned it around at a time when WCW, you know, people were asking me, okay, you know, when is Steve Austin going to the, to WCW? When is, you know, the rock, when's he going to WCW? Not the other way around. So, I mean, you know, he, the worst you can say about Russo is he was part of a successful team. Oh, he, he was. I mean, he had, you have to give him some credit, but maybe not too much. That's all. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, you know, everyone wants to say, okay, the stuff that was good, that was all someone else's credit and all the stuff that sucked, like, you know, the brawl for all and beaver cleavage, that was Vince Russo. Right. And it's like, look, none of us were in the building. So come on. Well, well uh, and I really like, loved, uh, you know, what we just did talking about Terry Funk. I just wanted to add for those scoring at home. I went back to his 76 run as champion, which is only about a year. His most frequent opponents was, of course, Dusty Rhodes, 35 matches, Jack Briscoe, 13, Mr. Wrestling, 213, and tied with 11, Jose Lothario and the Super Destroyer, which really surprised me. Super Destroyer? Yeah, I, I know. Definitely not the one from the AWA, but there was a Super Destroyer that had 11 uh, matches with him. But but if you look at all the, all the rest of the people, I mean... Uh, Terry really defended it in every territory. I mean, Tank Patton had two shots. Uh, Don Fargo had a shot. I mean, Ric Flair had a shot. I mean, you just go through this list. It's fascinating. But enough about that. Where did the Super Destroyer, where did he wrestle? Was this, I mean, I know the spoiler called himself Super Destroyer sometimes. I think, John Jordan. Yeah, I think this was one in Georgia. I, I, I believe it was in Georgia. Okay, I'm I'm gonna have to take a look at that because I'm I'm a little bit taken aback by that st- statistic. But wow, uh, yeah, I'll, I need to learn more about that. Anyway, uh, so R.I.P. Terry Funk, just an all-around great guy. He will be missed. He, I mean, you know, he, Ric Flair is my favorite wrestler. Terry Funk is the next shelf down, and there's, and there's only about six guys on that shelf. That's how much I love Terry Funk. <laughs> I just did the research. It was actually a super destroyer based out of uh, the Amarillo area. So his old promotion. Ah, that's what I figured. There we go. Another wrestler passed away. Uh, Sheik Adnan, a.k.a. Billy White Wolf, who, Steve, I have mentioned is, you know, my first favorite wrestler back when I was a, a casual wrestling fan, just going through the channels on a Saturday morning. If wrestling on, I, I, if, if wrestling was on, I watched. You know, you know, when I heard that uh, about Billy White Wolf, uh, and, and I, I want to hear your opinion on this. Uh, you know, if I look back on all the WWF champ- champions, tag champions, since we began watching in 76, if you said, well, who are the most over, who are the most popular tag team champions, I probably would have said Strongbow and White Wolf, uh, Wyndham and Rotunda, and that's about it i mean those, those are the two that i remember being super super over uh Korea and martel were over okay i'll, th- I'll throw them a bone but uh, but what, what, what do you think as well what do you think i mean they it, you know it was a little bit like when the strongbows came back in 82 they got off to a really hot start but then they didn't win the championships and they they just the Executioners versus Strongbow and White Wolf feud, in my opinion, just went on too long. It did, it did. And it was never resolved. They did that dumb, that dumb thing where a third Executioner came to the ring, and they stripped the Executioners of the tag team titles, yet they allowed them to participate in that bizarre tournament. Um, so n- none of it made any sense. But, I mean, Billy White Wolf it was the guy who, you know, First, like my foot was in the door in wrestling, and then when Chief J Strongbow came back, uh, and White Wolf alleges that you know Strongbow demanded to come back because he was jealous of Billy White Wolf, and when Strongbow came back, that was it. I was a a appointment TV every uh, Saturday at eleven a.m. on Channel Fifty Six, <laughs> and of course a lot of the fans know that he went on to become a huge uh, heel manager in the AWA, Sheik Adnan LKC, and I actually. Before the podcast, I actually reached out to George Shire, who is, of course, the AWA historian, and I asked him, I said, you know, why, why did that angle happen? Why did Billy White Wolf have to all of a sudden retire or disappear? And, uh, and he basically said that, uh, because I guess he was friends with the guy, he said that uh, he didn't really particularly care for the Billy White Wolf angle, and Vern gave him the offer, and he preferred being a heel, so that's why he ended up being a heel all those years in the AWA. 
Okay, because well, and, and I should point out that White Wolf uh, was retired at the hands of Ken Patera. Ken Patera ended his career right. in 1977, and I think Sheik Adnan came out in 1981. And mm-hmm. I know I read about White Wolf uh, just a result in like the ring wrestling from Hawaii. I'm like, right. wow, Billy back from the dead. Yeah, and I see him in the magazine as Sheik Adnan. I'm just staring at this guy. I'm like, is this Billy White Wolf? And I'm like, get an old magazine with a picture of Billy White Wolf. Oh, I think it's him. You know, dumb 16 year old that I was. Yeah, I, I was in I was in the same boat with you. I saw the same magazine, and I thought he must have had like Tommy John surgery and uh, went to Hawaii ah. to try to recoup. <laughs> yeah, he, he's starting off new with Sheik Adnan with after the Tommy John neck surgery, right? <laughs> uh, okay, and one last death to discuss. As a matter of fact, I'm going to bring on uh, someone who's more familiar with him, uh, Brett Sawyer died recently died this week it's it's very sad steve because um about a year and a half ago uh brett sawyer friended me on facebook and you know it's kind of cool it's like wow here's this wrestler who was a major star on national tv you know a few years back but still reaches out to me and friends me on facebook and after he passed away i'm like you know what he probably listened to this show <laughs> well, I, I heard him do a shoot interview recently, a, a few months or a year ago, and oh he, yeah, he was very, very enthusiastic about his time in wrestling. I think he had a lot of fond memories of being with his brother, who had died many, many years ago. And um, I think, I think, um, yeah, wrestling was probably the highlight of his life. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, he, he, I mean, he's on national cable as the national heavyweight champion at one point. And uh, before that, he was a big star in Portland. And a, a friend of ours, Jim Valley, who uh, frequently guests on this show, uh, got to grow up seeing Brett uh, becoming a star in Portland. I'd like to bring Jim on right now. Jim, thank you for taking the time. Brett Sawyer uh, passed away recently. You grew up in Portland watching Brett Sawyer ascend to stardom out in Portland. What was that like? You know, um, I think it was 1979. Um, his brother, more famous brother, uh, Buzz Sawyer, came into town. Mm-hmm. And he wrestled under the name Buzz Saw Kane Saw for Pain. very briefly. Matter of fact, you can find it on YouTube. Uh, Buzz Saw Kane. And then he disappeared, and he came back as, as Buzzsaw Sawyer. And he was a baby face. And after a little bit of time, I don't remember how long, but he introduced his brother. And he said, I'm the Buzzsaw. He's the Hacksaw. And after that, he became Hack Sawyer to fans in the Northwest. So when you talk to fans here, he's Hack Sawyer. And... Hack um, was a smaller guy, but, you know, the Portland Territory wasn't always big, but by and large, the Northwest champion was usually a big guy. Well, I think it was January of 82, I looked it up, in uh, Mike Rogers' book, but they held a battle royal for the Northwest title, and Hack Sawyer won the title. And he held the title, I think, three more times. And again, according to Mike Rogers' records, Hack Sawyer defended the Northwest title the third most times, right behind Buddy Rose and Rip Oliver. That's crazy. Yeah, he's in pretty elite company when you figure Lonnie Main and Dutch Savage, Stan Stasiak, and others that... uh, that he, he must have drawn pretty well. Um, and he also held the Northwest titles with his brother, with uh, a San Francisco wrestler by the name of, young guy by the name of Steve Pardee, twice with Tom Pritchard, and then once with Rocky Johnson. Now, Brett Sawyer's biggest run was in Georgia, where he was introduced on TV, almost as like a enhancement talent, as Brett Wayne, which was very odd to me, watching from Portland, 
because, you know, Buzz was in Georgia. And I knew that they were brothers and Gordon Soley and nobody was acknowledging him. And um, I guess he must have gone back and forth a couple of times between Georgia and Northwest because one time I was at a live show in my hometown of Centralia, Washington, and a hack was on the card, and there was a guy in the crowd that kept yelling, Hey, Brett Wayne! <laughs> over and over. I mean, and I'm sure, I mean, I knew it was Brett Wayne and all that, but it was at that point, that was sort of my Terry Funk moment where I realized um, the, the saturation of cable and the influence that cable was having and would continue to have on pro wrestling. But uh, as people know, Brett then upset Larry Zbysko for the Georgia national title, which was a pretty big belt at the time. Very big. Well, he held it for a few weeks and then lost it and then kind of faded off into obscurity. He was kind of a jobber to the stars after that. He also, I think, gained some weight. Yeah. And being yeah. a shorter guy, that that didn't help. But, you know, the business changed. The body expectation with the influx of bodybuilders and sort of like Tommy Rich, um, you know, he was kind of left behind. Yeah, you're right. The business was changing and changing quickly. Now, Brett Sawyer, he came back to Portland after that big Georgia run. Am I right? Uh, possibly, yeah. But I don't think it was very long. Okay. Because I, I have a, a vague remembrance, I should have looked this up, um, that he came back and held the tag team titles with Tom Pritchard in 84, but I could be wrong. Does that sound right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think you would be right because, yeah, Tom Pritchard was – 84 and 85. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So Yeah, you're right. So what was that like? I mean, you know, he had this big run on, on national TV, and now he's back in Portland. Did it feel like a letdown, or, or was it like, wow, a, a star has kind of come home? You know, I don't recall them really mentioning it very much. They may not have even mentioned it, maybe just in passing, but I don't know that they, that they really did. You know, he was a big deal. Because he was Hack Sawyer. I mean, he even like had like competitive matches with Ric Flair. He had great sort matches of, with Ric Flair. Yeah, on TV, like two out of three falls, he lost, and you know he should have lost. Right. But again, it was one of those fighting spirit, valiant efforts. You know, look how good he did against the world champion. You know, fans believed in. Brett Sawyer. I mean, the girls loved him. Matter of fact, if you're, I'm not sure if it's behind the paywall or not anymore, but my Portland WrestleCast, one of the, I think the first one I did was with Steve Regal, uh, the AWA guy, not William Regal, but uh, he tells a story where, you know, his wife was with him on the road, Regal, and so he tells the story that they were driving back from Seattle. And a group of girls, a car, uh, pulled up next to them and were flashing various body parts. <laughs> and uh, Hack was like, dude, come on, you got to help a buddy out here. Come on. And uh, Regal's like, I don't know, I'm married. Come on, man. So Regal pulls over. I think the way Regal tells it, he uh, imbibed with some herb that the girl had with one of the girls. And then Hack went and took care of his bodily urges <laughs> by the side of the road in the, somewhere along I-5 in, in the beautiful state of Washington. Ah, welcome to the 80s, boys and girls, children of all yeah, ages. <laughs> all about wrath. I have a feeling that was not uh, even close to Hack Sawyer's 
first conquest. <laughs> I, I definitely believe it. You know, I, it was sad about Brett that, you know, he got that big push on national television. I don't know what happened, like, you know, why he and Buzz wound up getting fired, but they did after that long buildup. And then to me, it was kind of sad because, you know, Brett was back in uh, JCP took over the spot. Brett was back. He was teaming with Buzz. They did an angle where the Sawyers were feuding with the Midnight Express, and then they kind of bump Brett out and put Dick Slater in his place, implying that Brett's just not a enough of a star for that feud. And I remember in '85, you know, watching that and being like, you know, why are they doing this? Yeah, well, I mean, he was like 1984's most improved wrestler, and that was sort of the award for biggest, you know, new push, yes. whatever you want to call it, you know, guy comes out of nowhere to get a push. You know, he, he had his moment sort of kind of like a year later, Billy Jack was a big deal for 85. And then he wasn't. Yeah. But I mean, Brett Sawyer, good looking guy, certainly could fight from underneath and get sympathy. And like I said, the girls liked him. He was really, by and large, though, not a great interview. No. Even with, even with Buzz, they limited his interviews. And when he did interview, was he sober? Was he not? Was he just kind of wacky? I don't know. Yeah. Not a great interview. So body type uh, aside... I, he couldn't cut a money interview for the 80s either. No, you're, you're right. I mean, that that's his downside. I mean, you mentioned the matches with Ric Flair. I've seen two matches of Buzz, uh, Brett Sawyer and Ric Flair from Portland. They were both, both times uh, Rick went over, as he should have, but they kept the match close and competitive. And you came out of it saying, okay, this Ric Flair is at his peak. Brett Sawyer is not at his peak. Brett Sawyer is going to be better than he is now a year from now. And maybe in 12 months, he will beat Ric Flair. I thought they, they were excellent matches. I think they were available on YouTube. And, I mean, you know, just properly booked. The right guy went over, but they did a great job with it. Absolutely. And then, you know, you think that you know, Brett feuded a lot. With Rip Oliver, who was a, a tough talking guy from Florida, who the Portland fans believed was, you know, the toughest SOB around. And the fact that he could go toe to toe and fight with Rip Oliver and the clan and win the title and defend the title and win titles with Rocky Johnson or Tom Pritchard or whomever, you know, like I said, the fans believed that he was this little tough fire plug. And that, that's exactly how you book Brett Sawyer. And, and you know, RIP, he seemed like a really great guy. Jim, I know you're on the road traveling. Uh, thank you for taking the time to be with us and then sharing your memories as a, a local guy who got to see Brett Sawyer in Portland. Yeah, he was, he, I mean, like I said, to a lot of fans in the 80s for that generation, he's definitely a big deal, no question. All right. Jim, thanks again. My pleasure. Anytime. All right. Jim Daly, thank you for taking the time to be on Stick to Wrestling. Jim is on the road. He was somewhere in Tennessee at a flea market. <laughs> time to uh, to take our call. So we, we definitely appreciate that. Now, about a month ago, we did a show on SummerSlam 88. And Lou, who is super flexible as far as recording our shows go, on this one particular day, he had to be finished at a certain time. He had another commitment. We had taken questions on SummerSlam 1988 that we never got to. And I don't like it when people ask questions and we never answer them. So we're going to go back a little bit and, and answer some of these questions. Um, I'll tell you what. Let me start with... Jamie Waldrop. Jamie asks, whatever happened to Bad News Brown's push? Um, my take on it is he he got his push. He had a, a nice run at the top against Hulk Hogan. I saw the main event at the Boston Garden. And then it was just kind of a, a natural uh, you know, slide to the bottom. What do you think, Steve? No, I, I agree with you. Um, in fact, I'm glad you get to see the infamous war bonnet match, uh, Hogan putting on the war bonnet. <laughs> and, and who thought people would buy those? Who was the, <laughs> who was the genius at the WWF marketing table who said, I, listen to this, guys, I've got an idea. 
if, if they could have been mass produced to that su- superb high quality that we saw that, that night in Boston, they would have they would have just been sold right off the shelves. Put it on that ward bonnet and get all the girls. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, to answer the question, you, but anyway. <laughs> To answer your question, uh, uh, Bad News uh, had a great feud uh, uh, house show series with Randy Savage for the title. Yeah. Uh, and, and, in fact, they had a couple of good matches at the Garden. And uh, you, you're right. I mean, he really run around the horn. He had that huge series of matches with Jake the Snake uh, where uh, Bad News kept saying he's going to release his ghetto sewer rats onto, uh, onto uh, the, the Damien, the Python. And, and oh, he, can I can I throw something in, Steve? Yeah, please. You know why they had that feud? No, why? Because because and guys, I'm just telling you there's there's an old, uh, very racist what is it trope that black people are afraid of snakes. So the WWF put that in a storyline. Yeah, that's that's gross. It, it really is. Welcome to the '80s, ladies and gentlemen. Things have gotten better, believe it or not. Yeah, um, you know, and, and it was it was sad though. I mean, as far as like. Again, talking about racist, uh, the stupid thing with him and Piper at WrestleMania. That I mean, that's I know they. I think they removed that match for if you want to watch WrestleMania and Peacock. But but I mean, Piper stealing the old gimmick from Star Trek. You know, the half on <laughs> black on one side and white on the other. I mean, that was so lame and so embarrassing. Uh, it was. But 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 I I did I did like him as a person. Uh, Alan Coach uh, seemed like a very intelligent guy on shoot interviews and a very. Uh, yeah, you know, very accomplished wrestler and karate guy. He medaled at the Olympics in judo. I mean, don't mess with a guy who does that. Yeah, yeah. So he had a very good run in in New York. Uh, that's that's what I would say to that. Okay, uh, Steve. How about you pick a question? Okay, uh, Wesley Wolbert asks: uh, Was the Ultimate Warrior beating Honky Tonk Man the greatest match that went under a minute? It's got to be up there as far as just. Uh, you know, execution, they did it so well, but um, I think Bruno beat Buddy Rogers in like 46 seconds. And, oh, and, 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 that, and that was like, you know, the kind of the solar eclipse of uh, the turn of the wrestling business there. So uh, definitely uh, that's the one I would go with. Bruno says that was a shoot. And I have no reason to think that Bruno Sammartino would just roll out of bed and start lying about stuff like that. Yeah, I, I mean, um, I mean, when you keep hearing those stories that, you know, Buddy was, uh, wrestling i mean some people said he was sick had the heart condition sometimes they said well he was wrestling a full schedule anyhow i who knows what to believe i don't know <laughs> i i i believe bruno just because bruno has credibility bruno said he got in the ring and you know his buddy we're doing this one way and it's my way and buddy's like all right bruno <laughs> <laughs> all right john you asked the question Okay. Who should have replaced superstar Billy Graham as an announcer? Oh, I don't know anyone. (laughs) (laughs) And we talked about the show, like, you know, for some reason, I had it in my head that, like, this was superstar Billy Graham's debut as an announcer. It wasn't. He had done house shows beforehand. So the WWF already had plenty of evidence that, look, this guy's just not a very good announcer. He should not be on this stage, one of your initial pay-per-views, and they were still, you know, new, fresh and new and a big deal, and they, they rolled them out there anyway. It made no sense. This is my uh, prediction or thought on that. I think uh, there was some night after one of those tapings that Vince and uh, Superstar went out to a bar, and, you know, Superstar got Vince's ear and said, uh, well, you know, Vince, uh, uh, Gorilla did say I died a few years ago. you got to do a solid for me. And, uh, oh, God. One of the craziest wrestling stories out there, Gorilla Monsoon prints in one of the Philadelphia newspapers where he had an article that superstar Billy Graham had died. And to make it even better, Cal Rudman gets on Spectrum TV and starts giving the details of his death. (laughs) Oh, he had cancer and he was as thin as a toothpick. My God, it was so sad. And Graham's alive. Oh, my God. (laughs) Graham contacts Monsoon. He's like, hey, can you write a retraction? And Gorilla's like, nope. (laughs) <laughs> oh that's hilarious and, and, and gorilla could have totally baby faced it just i got guys i'm sorry i but i have good news i had bad information superstar billy graham is alive and well in arizona and is planning a comeback you know he could have just like i said and, and gorilla was like nope case closed yeah. you're dead 
We'll have to read about that in the Brian Salmon book. I'm sure there'll be a chapter on that for about Gorilla. I'm looking forward to Brian's book. Brian uh, Brian does excellent work. All right. Now let me pick one more question here, and then you can pick one. Sure. Um, let me see. Would, were we fortunate to have avoided a Ric Flair debut here, asked Jonathan McDonald. Yes, definitely. Uh, everyone benefited from that. Rick benefited uh, coming in three years later. I think he might have maybe not got lost in the shuffle, but certainly less lost in the shuffle three years later when they needed someone in 1991. And without Rick Flair, had Rick Flair left the NWA uh, summer of 1988, that would have been a mortal blow to that promotion. Yeah, could you imagine a 1989 WCW without without Flair versus Steamboat, without Flair versus Funk? I mean, what could they have done? I mean, there'd be nothing left. No, and I have said, I've always said that I think in the end, Ric Flair going to the WWF for a year and a half, uh, you know, uh, mid-91 until the beginning of 93, it worked for everyone. It worked. WCW needed a break from Ric Flair, and he needed a break from it in the worst possible way. The, the you were never going to get Sting, Rick Rude, etc. over when Ric Flair was still there because he he you know the fans wouldn't accept anyone else as NWA champion, and you know you had to get him out of the way for a little while. So it all worked out in the end, in my in my opinion. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, Dan Potts asked, uh, why was Jake versus Rick Rude not on the card, and why not have Roddy Piper as the referee? And I think um, I think they saw Jake versus Rude as just a great ongoing house show feud. And again, I know this is, it sounds like ancient history when we talk about it now, but you know the house show matches were important back in the day to draw a good crowd. Um, I thought it was interesting. Uh, you know, you and I, when especially when we were reviewing 1983 and we keep seeing those results like, uh, you know, in a supposedly important match like the Intercontinental Champion beats one of the Samoans or one of the tag champs. Um, this was one of those very rare, rare times where Rick Rude pinned Hercules, uh, you know, a guy who was getting a push, who wasn't a jobber, wasn't a tag team guy. Uh, and and uh, so, I mean, the good thing for Hercules, they ended up giving him that big baby face push in another year or two. Uh, I think probably it was the following year. I mean, it, it only went so far, but uh, he had a good good run there. And then, of course, Power and Glory came after that. So, so that made sense. That was that was too funny. Bobby Heenan sells Hercules to Ted DiBiase, <laughs> and Hercules is going to be his slave. That's right. Oh, God. Anyway, so SummerSlam 1993 was a little bit more than 30 years ago, and we took some questions on that, but we we aren't going to review the entire show. I would never uh, abuse someone like that by asking Steve to do that. That that show was terrible. Well, you know, I I don't want to say it was was terrible. I I think, um, I mean, that period of wrestling was really bad for the WWF, but I I was surprised watching the show how well produced it was. Uh, I was was surprised that Vince was announcing with Heenan, so it had a real professional sound to it. But, uh, yeah, the, uh, the main event, uh, I felt was lacking. I mean, it was Luger against um, Yokozuna. And of course, we'll have to answer the questions. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I did want to touch upon that main event. Lex Luger, for, for all of his weaknesses, for all the, the negative things one might have to say about him, and they exist, Lex was so poorly pushed. I mean, when he came, first came to the NWA in 1987, they did a magnificent job with him. They made him one of the horsemen. They put the U.S. title on him. They pushed him the right way, and it was all a precursor for him turning into a babyface and turning into their Hulk Hogan, right? Mm-hmm. Well, they never get around to putting the title on him. They never get around to coronating him as maybe they should have. Then they turned him heel in 1989. And to me, that was the ultimate Lex Luger. Lex Luger was at his best when he was the bad guy. I, I, I always thought as a baby face, he came across as a little insincere. And he was, let's, you know, he was a naturally arrogant guy. That's just who he was. So let him be Lex Luger. Let him be the bad guy. 
89 was peak Lex Luger, in my opinion. Then 90 comes around. Sting gets hurt. They had just turned the horseman. They need a baby face. They press the panic button, and they make Lex Luger a baby face again. And I think that was the end of him in the NWA. I mean, he just you know was not in the right place as a baby face. They should have pushed the Steiners harder and let, let Lex remain a heel. And then they turned him again in 91 and talk about a dead fish. So now they bring him to the WWF. At first, he's a, a bad guy with a horrible gimmick, the narcissist, right? <laughs> right. Then they have him get off, get off the helicopter and body slam Yokozuna, uh, 4th of July, 1993. Now he's Mr. America dressed up in the flag and they're doing that Lex, Ex- Lex Express thing, and he's this candy-ass baby face, and the WWF never learns that does not work. The guys who got over Hulk Hogan was never a candy-ass baby face. Steve Austin, forget about it. The Rock, The Rock was the biggest bully I've ever seen in my life, but the fans loved him. And Lex Luger is caught in the middle of this. And they make him this this charismaless thing that, you know, once again, a candy-ass baby face. You look at 1993. What are the kids listening to, Steve? They're listening to rap, and they're listening to grunge. And they make Lex Luger this kind of pop star guy. It, it was awful, and it, it should have never worked, but it actually did a little bit. He was over at SummerSlam 93. Well, knowing how they've they've booked their promotion, like looking at the history of the entire promotion, it's, especially since Vince ran it uh, from like the early '80s on. I mean, you almost wonder why he didn't really flick the switch. It seems like he did at some point second guess himself and say, "Hey, we're going to go back to Brett. We're going to go in a different direction." Maybe, maybe the thing that made that happen, maybe they saw like how well Brett was doing over in Germany and overseas, maybe something like that. But, but, you know, it's funny how the the times and the decades change things because I remember, if you remember this, John, maybe four or five years ago before he became this huge, huge star that he is right now, I mean, Roman Reigns, they were shoving him down everybody's throat and the fans couldn't stand it. And they, but, you know, the fans after a while just realized, well, Vince is doing this to us. We hate Vince. and uh, But eventually, he became this huge, huge phenomenon like he is now. He's a huge star. Would that have happened with Luger? Uh, probably not. But, I mean, if they had kept shoving him down, maybe something would have happened. I don't know. I mean, Steve, it was a different audience. I mean, they had very limited, uh, per- very small percentage of the fans were on the internet. I would say less than 1%. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would change quickly. But, you know, fans didn't have access to that. They just tuned in and they cheered for whoever they were supposed to cheer for. Not like, you know, uh, 2015 when, you know, the fans were <laughs> crazy. They were like organizing, like, you know, when when Roman Reigns is on camera, we're going to turn our backs to the camera, not <laughs> just like that. Right. Just stay home if you want to be like that. But, you know, like I said, it was a different audience, and they kind of cheered for who they were supposed to cheer for. I had heard coming in that, you know, Luger was getting the belt. They were going to give him the Hulk Hogan treatment. And then they did the count out finish and, you know, they started playing the music and, you know, the balloons come down from the ceiling. I'm like, the title didn't change hands. What are they doing? (laughs) Right, right. And then I don't want to say who, but I asked someone, you know, who knows what's going on. And he said, yeah, they kind of did a last minute switch where they figured the money was in the chase. Yeah. And I was like, that's crazy. I mean, I know that's that's an all-timer of a a wrestling expression that the money is in the chase. Not this time. You had to put the belt on Lex Luger and make him your next Hulk Hogan, just like they put the title on Hulk Hogan right away in 1984. He hadn't been on TV for four weeks, and they put the belt on him. You know, the, the sad the sad thing is, looking back, uh, Yokozuna, I mean, uh, you got to give him all the credit in the world. I, don't, I think he's definitely the most agile, most athletic 500-pounder of all time. I got to give him credit for that. But 
he didn't resonate with the crowd as, God, we got to pay money to see Yokozuna. I can't wait to get to the arena to see Yokozuna. I mean, looking back on it now, I mean, just the fact that they tried to build him up as this huge monster heel when he was just basically, you know, a slobby Samoan guy. I mean, I mean, no offense to, to him or the Samoans, but just, just uh, I mean, it wasn't like your typical heel that had like uh, tons of muscle or tons of power. I mean, he was just going to squash her one way or another. I remember when he was Coquina, and I saw him in Continental. I saw him in the AWA. In, uh, yeah, I saw him in the AWA. I saw him in Japan. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, why isn't someone making money off this guy? Mm-hmm. And then in 92, I get a phone call, and I hear, you know, Coquina, I forget his real name. It doesn't matter. Right. The WWF came up with a gimmick with him that is a license to print money. And they explained <laughs> what it was. Yeah. I'm like, oh, this doesn't sound like a license to print money. And then I see it on TV, and I'm like, this is going to be big. And it was. And it had a shelf life, but I still thought it was a great gimmick. And, you know, they finally figured – someone finally figured out how to use this guy. Yeah, well, I I mean, uh, you know, it it was a good gimmick in the sense that you're making him a sumo grand champion. But, I mean, if if they have sumo wrestling on ESPN, it probably doesn't even do a uh, hash mark, you know? (laughs) No, no, you're right. No, so again, uh, I mean, I just want to emphasize to everyone, I think had they put the belt on Lex Luger at SummerSlam 93, would Luger have been the next Hulk Hogan? No, but I mean, he would have drawn better than whatever else they were rolling out in 93 and 94. I mean, no offense to Brett, but a babyface Brett Hart, I think absolutely has a far lower ceiling than a babyface Lex Luger. Right, right. Well, you know, over time, um, you know, Brett paid his dues. I mean, he had a lot of good matches. Uh, even the match on this card with Jerry Lawler, I mean, it it, it wasn't your traditional type of a match, but uh, he, he really, um, you know, it was kind of like your old school, almost like a 70s wrestling match. I, I mean, Jerry Lawler, it, what he did before the match reminded me of something Blassie did against Morales or against Strongbow. You know, I'm crippled up, and then he turns out he's not crippled, you know. And, but uh, but that was really good showbiz, and uh, I think Brett just kind of flew under the radar for a long time, and then by the time Stone Cold was with the promotion, so everything started to take off again, and business was big again. I remember the pro wrestling torch in like 90 or 91. It was Wade Keller and one of his editors. They had a draft of wrestlers. Okay. And Wade Keller made Bret Hart his number one draft pick. Really? And I was like, no, I wait. I know they can do much more than Brett with what they're that what they're doing. This is before he won the Intercontinental Championship. Uh-huh. And I was like, but you know, he doesn't have that kind of a ceiling. And it turns out Brett ha- was capable of more than what I thought he was in 1991. I thought, you know, okay, intercontinental champion, that's it. And Brett was phenomenal in 1997 as a heel. And to this day, I'm, I'm sorry that, you know, he wound up going to WCW and financially that worked out well for Brett, but, you know, for everything else, it wor- worked out really poorly. And I'm, I'm a little bit sad to this day, 26 years later, that the Hart Foundation versus Steve Austin storyline wound up getting short circuited like it did. Oh yeah, yeah. That that was that was a really a, a peak period right there when they had that five on five match in Calgary. I mean, oh, yeah. he, and even Austin did the job. I mean, that shows you what a team player he was. And um, but anyhow, we've got some great questions here from the Stick to Wrestling audience. We do, and I just wanted to say that that Calgary match was unbelievable. The fans were all rooting for the quote unquote bad guys, the Hart Foundation, mm-hmm. and it was like it was like you know watching uh, Tennessee at Alabama. It was like watching you know uh, what uh, Auburn at Alabama or yeah. Ohio State at Michigan. It was like you know the place is going nuts, and they're all cheering for the home team. So that was. And those were good times. And again, this is back when, you know, everyone knew it was a work, but so what? Yeah, it was, it was so refreshing to see, uh, you know, wrestling be looked at so seriously again. I mean, the, the 90s, you know, up until that point, it was kind of like a wash. Like there wasn't anything to really sink your teeth into. And now all of a sudden you had matches that people cared about again. Yeah, the 90s were the, the weirdest time in wrestling. I mean, 
If someone had told me in 1993, hey, don't worry about it. WCW is going to be the top promotion within the next two or three years. I would have been like, yeah, right. They have, you know, they'll be out of business in two or three years the way they're going. And again, I had people asking me, you know, instead of, you know, when is Lex Luger, Ric Flair, the Road Warriors, when are they going to the WWF? I had people asking me, when is Bret Hart, Steve Austin, et cetera, going to WCW is a total bizarro world. <laughs> First question, Thomas Bain, uh, and we were taking questions from about SummerSlam 93. If you want to get in on this, join the group. Thomas Bain asked, did they know this was going to be Ted DiBiase's last match in the WWF at the time? Yes, Thomas, that was actually, if you got the newsletters, it was common knowledge that Ted DiBiase was finishing up. And I personally was really looking forward to to seeing Ted DiBiase in a fresh new environment. Um, he had been in the WWF since fall of, uh, excuse me, summer of 1987, so six years, and it was time for something new, and Ted was planning on doing just Japan and Indies for a while, but we were all kind of like, oh, maybe he could go to WCW and make a difference there, and it turned out that Ted, well, he was going to cash in his Lords of London insurance policy and turn into a manager. Yeah, he, um, after this match, which was a decent match with uh, Razor Ramon, he did work, I think, uh, a few matches in all Japan, and I think he did kind of have an injury of some sort, and then soon would come back to the WWF as kind of their lead heel manager, and he really wasn't too good in that role, um, and <laughs> not too good at all, I don't think. I, I was so d disappointed. I don't know what happened with Ted DiBiase as a manager. He, I thought he stunk. I yeah. absolutely thought he stunk. And coming in, you know, I hear that he's going to be the manager. I'm like, well, this is going to be great. Ted DiBiase is a phenomenal interview. And, you know, his character, the million dollar man, is the perfect manager candidate. But for some reason, it, no matter who they put him with, it never came together. It, it just seemed to be like just like an old fashioned wrestling trope at the time, uh, making him a manager. And he had that terrible uh, army of wrestlers, including Volkov, who was beyond fumes, beyond fumes at that point. And, uh, but, you know, he, he always found a way to get a good paycheck. I mean, he ended up going to the WCW and he was uh, supposedly the higher power or whatever, and he got paid on that. But, uh, but you know, he, I, 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 you know, we all love him as a wrestler. His WWF run as a whole, I thought, was kind of underwhelming, even though the Million Dollar Man character was over huge. Yeah, you know, Ted might have been one of those guys. He knew how to get himself over. He knew how to get his opponent over, but he may not have known how to get his protege over, if that makes any sense. It makes a lot of sense. All right. Time for you to pick a question, Steve. All right. Edward Whipley asks, why weren't there more Steiner versus the Heavenly Bodies matches after SummerSlam? Um, I, I didn't really look at the schedule to see if there were or weren't, but um, I will say from watching this card, uh, the quality of that match blew me away. Um, yes. I, I, I hadn't remembered. Uh, I, I think I, I got actually Teresa DeMarie from The Observer. She sent me a copy of this match. That's how I ended up watching it live at the first time. Not not live, but like a few days after. And um, the, the, the match was so high quality. I mean, the beginning of the match, the Heavenly Bodies are just, you know, Eating, eating the Steiners up, uh, you know, killing them. The first two or three minutes of the match was all heavenly bodies. And then the Steiners, before their hometown crowd, were just dominating the match with all these big power moves. And Cornette was there. It was a very exciting match. I, I had never seen the heavenly bodies in such a good match like this. Oh, the Heavenly Bodies were an awesome tag team. I mean, some of their Smoky Mountain wrestling matches were off the charts, like mm -hmm. against the Rock and Roll Express, for example. Uh -huh. I, I mean, and, and the Fantastics, not uh, Bobby Fulton and Tommy Rogers, but Bobby and Jackie Fulton. I mean, that was the Stan Lane Heavenly Bodies, not the uh, Jimmy Del Rey Heavenly okay. Bodies. But mm -hmm. anyway, I, I hated the way the WWF used the Heavenly Bodies. I mean, I guess they just weren't the WWF's kind of tag team, but, you know, they use them as jobbers. And, I mean, you watch this match at SummerSlam, and you're like, yeah, okay, maybe they're not destined for superstardom in a place like the WWF, but come on, you can do more with them than they did, and, and they wound up doing nothing with them. And to this day, I'm a little bit disappointed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It uh, 
just just from this match alone, I mean, you can tell uh, both teams are extremely good. Yeah. And, you know, it's not like I'm trying to remember the Vin, I remember watching like one of the uh, Saturday morning shows or whatever one was on at uh, 11 o'clock on USA Network. And the Heavenly Bodies did, did a job for this like nothing team. Well done. Like, okay, <laughs> it, it might have been. I'm mm-hmm. not sure. I don't think it was well done. I think mm-hmm. it was something even worse than that. I'm like, oh, man, I can't wait for these guys to go back to Smoky Mountain. And by the time they did go back to Smoky Mountain, guess what? They had been exposed to just not being stars in the WWF. It was all very sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've, I've been looking through the questions. I, I don't think we have anything left, really. <laughs> no, uh, let me see. I, I've got one that I wanted to, to discuss before. Sure. We ended up leaving. Oh, let me see. Was there any really con- serious consideration of putting the championship on Luger? Yes. My understanding that it was the plan, even after SummerSlam, my understanding was that the plan was to eventually make Lex Luger the champion. It just never happened. Yeah. I, I mean, as a fan watching it back then, I mean, it was just constant, constant. You know, the Lex Express and the showing the huge bus. I mean, that that bus probably had uh, more exposures than any bus since the Partridge family bus. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it just it just seems so unusual for them to push something so, so hard and then just all of a sudden give up on it. It's, that part seems shocking. Yeah, and even if Lex wasn't getting over the way they wanted him to, even though, like I said, I thought the character was terrible, especially you know considering the age that we were in. I mean, look, you're you're you've invested that much in it. I mean, just see if it works. If not, just put the belt back on Yokozuna. Well, I, I think you made a good point earlier. The whole, the entire Lex Luger push was so bizarre from the beginning. I mean, the, the thing with Bobby Heenan and the narcissist, it seemed like Bobby wasn't like putting his uh, whole you know, body and soul into that, or they weren't no. giving them enough time together in that thing. And, and then before that, uh, they had had him on that uh, body start show in the USA. It was almost like, like Luger was kind of like the ambassador from the wrestlers to the WBF when Vince was pushing the WBF. Yeah, Bobby Heenan, by that point in his career, I know he didn't want to be a manager and it really it felt like when he came out of retirement for Ric Flair, mm-hmm. it was because he wanted to do it. Yeah. It felt like when, when the, they brought him in with Lex Luger, it was like he was being told to do it. It really felt like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a feeling his heart and soul really wasn't into that whole thing. All right. One last thing to talk about. Jamie Hama mentions Vince was stuck at least a decade behind. Yes, he was. The 80s were over. And I know a lot of people don't like it when I say that, you know, pro wrestling in the 80s felt like a fad because before the WWF expanded nationally, it was drawing huge crowds and huge TV ratings. I get that. But as something, you know, it was something that was on a UHF channel early in the morning or late at night in most cases. And it felt like, you know, when the WWF, when that all exploded with Cindy Lauper and Mr. T, WrestleMania, etc., by 93, it really felt like those days were over and wrestling was just a fad. And I really did not think the WWF would find the next big thing. I, it felt like wrestling was was eventually going to go the way of roller derby. Yeah, I mean, um, you got to give uh, credit to Bischoff. I mean, um, and, and I mean, everybody likes to piss on Hogan, but you know, Hogan wanted to work. He wanted to revitalize his career, and uh, when uh, Kevin Sullivan and Bischoff and those guys convinced him to go heel, I mean, that, that was a major reason why the business picked up again. Yeah, the the whole NWA. NWO concept, you know, just blew everything up. And the heels, you know, whether I liked it or not, uh, were the cool guys who broke all the rules and the, the fans chanted along with their catchphrases. And like you, I give Eric Bischoff all the credit in the world. Did it last forever? No, it didn't. There were reasons it didn't last forever. And some of them really were beyond Eric Bischoff's control. But, you know, I mean, who else could have taken WCW and made it the number one promotion in the world? And think about the ashes it rose from, like where it was in 
Oh yeah, and and Bischoff had the wherewithal to uh, when they once they did start the house show business again to raise the tickets. I mean, let's make some revenue out of this. I mean, it seemed like all those years, ninety two, ninety three, ninety four, they were like on a treadmill, losing money constantly. Yeah, I mean, and like I mean, they were on, like you said, on that treadmill. It was going nowhere, and you know, Bischoff shook it out of that. You know, just okay. It's just this thing that we have on Saturday nights that makes Ted Turner happy. Here's the thing I wanted to talk about. We'll wrap up with this. Sure. S.K. Lee asks, 1993 was around the time WWF worked with Smoky Mountain Wrestling and USWA. Which is true. They worked closely with USWA in 1993, and they were always kind of allied with SMW. Who benefited more from the team-up, Smokey or Memphis? It looked like Memphis got more of the talent while Smokey was only good for Cornette and the bodies. Um, I mean, there was a time where you know Randy Savage was wrestling the main event in Memphis against Jerry Lawler. And then, I mean, I was there when The Undertaker came to Smoky Mountain Wrestling uh, and Shawn Michaels came too. So you would think, and, and here's the, the thought behind it, Steve, right? Mm-hmm. P- all right, people, come out and see Randy Savage. And then when you see Brian Christopher, Jeff Jarrett, PG thirteen, etc., you're going to start liking our promotion, and you're going to and you're going to come see it regularly. Hey, Smoky Mountain fans, you know, come see Shawn Michaels and the Undertaker. But you'll come back next time when you see Buddy Landell and the Heavenly Bodies and Tracy Smothers and everyone else. It didn't work out that way. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but it's true because all you did was you told the local fans, hey, don't come back until Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker are here. Stay home for our regular shows. You know, the wonderful thing, looking back on it now, uh, of all people, the one guy that didn't have to do this, Randy Savage, uh, he told uh, Cornette that he would uh, do a job for a bruiser bedlam, you know, for, yeah, and he did. I mean, I mean, that's the kind of a team player he was. I mean, he had no ego. He willing to do a job. He basically told him, I'm not going to come back next week. You might as well have me do the job. So that's a team player. Very professional on Randy Savage's part. And as you could tell, doing that one job to Bruiser Bedlam just killed his career. No, it didn't. It didn't matter. That's right. He still got to be Spider-Man. All right. Well, see, I think we've gone over an hour. We were kind of jumping around a little bit. But, Steve, thank you for coming back, and we're going to have you back real soon. Well, that's great. And uh, and I wanted to thank uh, Sean uh, Heinberger, who uh, did the SummerSlam show, and we just kind of picked up some of the crumbs that were left over, and he did a great job with that. Yeah, and he stole Dalton Kincaid in my fantasy league from me. <laughs> for that, Sean Heinberger. <laughs> We he, really off topic. Sean and I are in two fantasy leagues together, right? Mm-hmm. We draft one, and one of them was like on uh, Google Voice, and I announced my my pick of Dalton Kincaid. He's the tight end from the Buffalo Bills, and I'm like, I just kind of mentioned that's my guy. So the next draft we're doing on Yahoo, and he jumps in front of me and grabs Dalton Kincaid no. like spots earlier. I'm like, it's my own fault. I got a big mouth. I had to announce <laughs> that you know, Dalton Kincaid's my guy, and he jumped ahead of me. So congratulations, Sean. But Steve, thank you again. I want to thank Brian Last for giving us uh, this podium, this forum. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does week in and week out. He is, if you appreciate this show, appreciate Appreciate Lou. And of course, I want to thank everyone for listening. We'll be back next week. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Go Vols. This concludes our podcast day.